0: Hello and a warm welcome to the EPO's Talk Innovation Podcast. I'm Edward Cook, a patent examiner at the EPO. Recently I had the pleasure to host the fifth episode in the EPO's Inspiring Inventors series. Each episode introduces an inventor, discusses the story behind their invention and allows you, our audience, to learn from their experiences of bringing their invention out of the lab and into the market. This podcast episode is a recording of the conversation I had with Elena Garcia Armada, scientific researcher and founder of Marciobionics, a company that develops an adaptable robotic exoskeleton for children. In this episode we discuss a number of topics such as pediatric exoskeleton technology, the extra challenges inventors face in the medical devices domain, the requirements of clinical testing, the importance of patents in obtaining funding and hiring talent, and of course, the inspirational story behind her invention. Now, please join me in listening to Elena's insights. So welcome, Elena. How are you today?
1: Fine. Thank you for inviting me to this nice talk.
0: Oh, great. It's great to have you. So thanks for taking time out of your day to join us. Now, there is a very inspirational message in that short video, and I feel that inventions in the medical domain and especially pediatric care resonate with so many people. So I imagine you took a very interesting journey to get where you are today. So maybe we could start off a little bit with a a brief overview of your academic background and how you ended up as a scientific researcher in the domain of exoskeletons. I mean, it strikes me as not being a very typical research, research domain even for someone who studied engineering.
1: Well, I I decided to study robotics engineering because of its creativity, uh, because it's wonderful to bring some pieces of material to to life. And especially I have been really fascinated by transferring uh, biology to to robotics. So mimicking how natural biology makes animals walk or run and how the, the muscles have this versatility of of motions to to make an animal, to jump, to walk, to to have some agility. So this is something that has influenced all my my career. So during my PhD research, uh, I I studied this biomimetics of of robotics research and focus on robot-legged locomotion. And had also a huge influence from the MIT Leg Lab where I stayed for some period of time during my PhD research. So this has been what has moved uh, towards the research on uh, artificial muscles. And this at the end has led to some inventions and buttons and, and some prototypes and finally led to the exoskeleton research, which also mimics the, the way human human moves, the biomechanics of, of human locomotion.
0: Okay, so the, the result of your desire basically to transfer what you saw in nature, biology into robotics is, is what we saw in the video. And your invention, as you mentioned, is the world's first adjustable exoskeleton. It's the first such device designed to adapt to the joints of young patients. So maybe you can describe for the audience, because if I understood correctly, your research, initially so you started looking at exoskeletons for adults, for heavy industry, work in that domain. So how did you decide to go from there towards pediatric care? Was that a big jump for you? Was there maybe some point in time where you said, okay, this is what I should be doing?
1: Well, it was the time when I finished my PhD research and, and I got a 10 year position in the Spanish National Research Council that in in the United States, the program from for developing exoskeletons For military applications but it was a a, a 10 years of very interesting research on on the technology that uh, makes it possible uh, for exoskeletons to to be able to be autonomous to provide the force that is needed etc and in in that field uh, i then i started to to work to, to research on exoskeletons, but uh, with an application in industry. So to help the workers to, to move some loads without pain in, in their bodies. But one day, uh, a family came to our lab. It was well, the parents of a girl, Daniela. She had a tetraplegia. And well, by that time, there were a couple of exoskeleton companies already in the market with devices, but for adult uh, paraplegics um therefore there was nothing there in the market for for children and this family that knew that we were we were researching on legged locomotion and some kind of exoskeletons for their application they were asking for a solution for 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 her daughter well that was the reason why we started to analyze the the real need and we found out that there were around 17 million children in the world affected by a huge number of, of different affections, mainly neurological affections, but that they were wheelchair bounded and they had no possibility to rehabilitate or to improve their quality of life. Um, the permanent sitting position in the wheelchair is something that has some side effects uh, on the health of these kids. Uh, they have uh, problems with uh, the, the muscles that support the the trunk and then the trunk bends the spine bends which is called scoliosis and this causes additionally a problem of respiratory dysfunction which can be very severe for these kids therefore understanding the, the severity of the problem and that there was no other device in the market and knowing in advance that we had know how to develop a device that is able to to adapt to the needs of these kids then we have started to work on 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 this problem
0: okay so you you decided to move from the industrial domain to the domain of pediatric care and if listening to what you're saying there it seems to me at least as a layman that these challenges that you met in this domain were more than just simply taking exoskeletons that existed already and making them smaller for children, right? You you had to do more than that. So maybe you can go into a little bit about what those challenges were and how, how you met them.
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So as I have already said, there were exoskeletons in the market for adult paraplegics. But however, uh, kids are kids that are unable to walk are usually affected by other kinds of diseases, which are mainly cerebral palsy and neuromuscular diseases. Of course, there there is also spinal cord injury in childhood, but it's a minority. So they are different diseases, and exoskeletons are medical devices. This means that that in a very similar way than uh, medicines, drugs, uh, they need to be proved, clinically tested, and demonstrated to be safe, useful uh, for a given affection. Therefore, exoskeletons for adult paraplegics, if we simply reduce the size, we will then get exoskeletons for spinal cord injury in in children, but not useful uh, or indicated for spinal cord injury, or sorry, for uh, cerebral palsy and neuromuscular diseases, which are the main affections in children. So what's the problem with this kind of affections that uh, they are very complex in symptoms? I mean, if someone uh, suffers an accident and well, at the end, there's a spinal cord injury, um, this person was not initially ill. It's not an illness. So it's, it's a matter of that the brain is not connected to the muscles and therefore the information from the brain to the muscles is not uh, reaching the muscles and therefore the joints are not able to move but the body is working properly i mean if you simply move the leg of a person with a, a paraplegia the the joint moves smoothly well at, at the very beginning then after that, there are some side effects and whatever, but just at the very beginning, it's a is something that is moving smoothly. However, spine, um cerebral palsy, neuromuscular diseases—they are affections, they are illnesses. Uh, usually, from when there some are genetic diseases. Um, therefore, the child is born with the illness, and there's a degeneration in, in symptoms, and there are very compl- so many complications in the movement of the joints. There are very uh, stiff uh, parts of the motion, which is called uh, spasticity. So the, the joint blocks to the motion. It's not possible to move the joint. And there are some other complications like, like contractors, deformities. So this means that simply moving the joint in a passive manner is not safe. It is, what is important is to interact intelligently Understanding what is happening in the in the user joint. Therefore, what we need there is an intelligent joint, an intelligent artificial joint moving the natural joint of the patient, able to understand if there's a stiffness or if there's a contractor or whatever, and behave in a safely manner. So, what we developed was not a small exoskeleton, what we developed was a technology, a, an artificial muscle technology able to interact safely with a body, a human body with joints with some very versatile uh, symptomatology. This is exactly what we what we did. So what is patented in, in different patents is the adaptability in, uh, to the different symptoms of the user. And at the end this is what is configured as an exoskeleton by putting some some artificial joints together
0: until you build the complete body okay so you you described there you're dealing with muscle atrophy, so the degeneration of muscles but then on top of that you have the complexity and maybe even more so in a child of making sure the joints themselves are not damaged so not moved in the wrong way so to control the environment of the movements Um, and this is indeed if we If we consider what the patents you obtained, the first one was a patent for elastic actuators, so joints with adjustable firmness that respond to muscle motion, and the second one was for an exoskeleton that can be adapted to the different medical conditions and physical properties of the body. So exactly what what you described there. And now I think it's clearer to the audience why those inventions were required for an exoskeleton for a child as opposed to an exoskeleton for an adult, because you're, you're you're dealing with two different environments. What's interesting, I think, there is what you mentioned about the ability of your exos- exoskeleton to adapt to the different wearers as their health conditions evolve. So, how does this work? I, I can imagine there's probably a hardware and a software element. Is there? Yes, that's it. Yeah. You want me to develop a little bit more on this? Yeah, so I guess the audience can imagine that you know, as a child grows, the exoskeleton can be extended, as you talked about already. You can make it grow a little bit with the child. But then, there's probably maybe more interesting is the AI bit that we saw in the video there. There's an adaptation, I guess, there as well, is there? Yeah. So
1: there, there are two kinds of adaptability or adaptable systems. One is hardware, and the other is software, of course. So I have been talking about how to adapt. To these needs of the of the joints, by ability in the symptoms that make it makes the need of having an artificial joint able to understand what is happening in the real user joint and to move the joint, taking into account the symptoms, not to harm the the user. But of course, there are some other adaptabilities that are related to the size of the kid and also adapting to the. Progress, the progressive uh, growing up of, of the kit. So therefore, the hardware, that the device has some, has some uh, different adaptability options, which are also reflected in the in the claims of the patent. For example, of course, uh, links. All the links are telescopic, so you can simply align with the size of of each of the limbs of of the legs, and also in width. So it's completely uh, adaptive from approximately a, a kid of three years old to 10, 12. It depends of the, on the size, of course, not exactly on the age of the kid. But there are all very important adaptations in the hardware. For example, I have already mentioned that these kids ha- suffer usually from deformities. Deformities at the joints. For example, the knees are bent and uh, are bended. Also, the, the foot, the ankle has some kind of a sinus, uh shape, and therefore the, the, the mechanical part of the exoskeleton needs to be adapted, not to harm again. And therefore there are so many adaptations that are able to adapt safely the exoskeleton to these uh, kind of deformities, these the deformities are very typical of these diseases. So it's not something just in one kid or two. It's, it's completely usual, and therefore is is a very important part of the of the medical device
0: yeah and that's that's really interesting because you know we've had a few inventors on the on the series the the inspiring inventor series and we've talked about developing prototypes we talked about the need you know to go to something that's in the mind of the inventor they're not happy until they get there but now what you're touching on here is actually the requirements for clinical testing so how much of a challenge was this for you and your team i mean you know maybe you can let us know about did it it cause you to have to implement major modifications to your prototypes or indeed did it mean that you had to expand your team so you could incorporate different skill sets to figure out how do you meet these requirements so maybe you can give us a bit of an insight in that area
1: Yeah, exactly, exactly. So at the very beginning, a team of engineers is not considering the the huge importance of the clinical practice. So we, at the very beginning, developed a robotic device. And at the end, when we ended up with the project, then we tested it in a patient. And then we realized that the most difficult part is exactly the clinical practice. So once you have a robotic device that needs to work jointly with a human being. Uh, this interaction is the is is the, the center of the whole research, should be the center of the whole research. So it's not there's no possibility to, to separate the technical research and the clinical research. Everything mm-hmm. must be joined together in a cycle. So since then <laughs> what we do is that we work together with a, with a clinical team. At the very beginning we were working with hospitals and clinicians and so on. Now we already have a clinical team on board. And it's so important to have the clinical team on board since the definition of the concept of the device during the development. So it's very important to have different uh, assessment uh, milestones uh, based on the clinical practice. And of course, after the first proof of concept, which is a preliminary proof of concept in 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 a real user, in a patient, usually, there are a number of modifications to the to the technical developments so at the end there's a number of cycling uh, activities from the technical to the clinical part and again and at the end everything ends up with a clinical trial if it's a medical device and uh, I, this this clinical trials they want to demonstrate that first of all the safety of the of the use of the device for the patient, of course, the the first thing to demonstrate is is safety, absence of uh, side effects, and of course the usability of the of the device. These are the the main uh, tests that that need to be demonstrated clinically.
0: And for you, I mean, if I understood your journey a bit, you went to MIT, you went to this leg uh, research lab, if I can call it that, which looked at the robotics and legs so you were very much aware from what your story has been so far of the nature of movement muscles so already there was something there in your head about you know how do we go from the the way nature has created us to the to this yeah foreign mechanical world if you like how difficult was for you then to get your head around the pediatric requirements or did you simply go okay look i know about this part And now I will expand my team to include people who know about pediatric care, and we're just going to work as a unit there, or was it a marriage of those two different things I spoke about?
1: Yeah. Well, I am a robotics researcher, I'm a robotics engineer, but it's true that I have been always fascinated by biology and how to mix all this into biomimetic instantiations. of course when when we turn to uh, neurological diseases and children affected by neurological diseases, there's an additional requirement of understanding some fundamentals of neurology, neuromuscular diseases, understanding the diseases, the affections, especially the symptoms. as I said, the robotics dev- the robotic device needs to work together with a human body that is some kind of ill is not is not uh, a healthy a healthy body and therefore understanding these difficulties exactly the symptoms the evolution of the disease where is it going to and sometimes what happens and this is very really, really fascinating what can happen if we interfere in some point to this evolution of the illness can we Modify evolution of the illness. This is something that is uh, well fascinating for me. So, of course, you need to to learn and study <laughs> a bit more on on this well medical part. But in my case, it has been really fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's um, it sounds amazing, but I also think about how challenging it would be. Uh, simply the amount of knowledge that you you have to gather in order to move forward especially when you're dealing with like these clinical tests and so if we look now maybe towards the you see towards how you went further so you had your idea you've done the clinical tests the were the patents themselves were they important or even the patent applications when you were looking to grow your team or to found the company uh, Marcy Bionics would that knowledge that you had captured in the patents, was, was that important for people to know you had the rights to, for example?
1: Yeah, definitely. Patents are the big assets, especially for the transfer of technology. So, I mean, when research results need to be transferred to the society, to the real world, which is this ca- the case, so you end up with a solution to a very real need, a global need of, in this case, 70 million children. So you cannot just end up with publishing some scientific papers. You need to transfer these research results to society. And patents play a key role for these are the big assets, because, well, it's of course the research results that need to be transferred to the to the um, entrepreneurial uh, world. So, uh, there, there must be a company that licenses these patents and uh, develop or industrialize this technology uh, to be commercialized. And therefore for that, the patents are the big asset that is transferred. But sometimes that has happened in this case to me, there is no company out there that is willing or able or interested in taking care of these patents and industrializing this technology to take it to, to the society for whatever reason. In this case, there was a huge economical crisis, but uh, it can be for for any reason. And in this case, you need to create the companies, what is called a spin-off, spin-off company. And for creating the company, patents are key again, because are, again, this this Big assets, along with the know-how of the of the research team, that is also needed at, at the very beginning, at least in the in the initial period of, of technology transfer. But it's it is completely impossible to fund a company to to receive funds to receive investment if there are no patents there. It's completely impossible because the the, the high risk of the company, and also if we are considering medical devices companies that have a a long time to market. So the the risk for investors is so high and therefore there's no possibility to fund the company. And well, the, the, the the, the project of transferring the technology to the market will not succeed. And also, you have also mentioned hiring personnel. This is also very important because for this kind of uh, projects, a high qualified, a, h- a highly qualified team and multidisciplinary team is, is required. And therefore, bringing this highly qualified people on board uh, requires having this uh, patented technology. It's important for the team to have a, It's it's like a seal of, of excellence of, of the of the company and of the project so in my case uh, patents have played a key role in in the transfer of technology and on succeeding in creating creating and, and and now at this moment growing up the company
0: yeah you've touched on a lot there i mean the first thing that always occurs to me when when i speak to an inventor who's coming from an academic background is this mantra that we often hear that you have to publish your results and maybe even on your team, you had PhD candidates. So did, did you have to deal with that issue of um, explaining to people or even understanding yourself at what point we can publish uh, with the back, in the back of your mind knowing, okay, I also need to worry about my company. I need to make sure I, I protect what I'm inventing. Was that a difficult thing to, to balance?
1: No it it hasn't been complicated I don't think it's complicated this what is important is to to explain uh, very well how the process is and and the importance of of protecting the the invention but it's not complicated we have been very very well um um we have been held by, by the Spanish National Research Council, the transfer, the technology transfer office. Since the very beginning, they they help us to understand exactly what to do. And it's to that we have PhD research, also industrial PhD research in the company. But uh, it's not so complicated, it's just to make sure where is the invention, to protect first the invention and then the, the, the scientific publications come. It's not so complicated. It's just a matter of having it uh, very well scheduled, and not not leaving the protection of the IP to the to the variant, but to to protect the the technology exactly at the at the right moment, so it doesn't interfere in the in the scientific publication of the PhD results.
0: So this is where tech transfer offices are become so important. I mean, I remember when I was doing my research that patents and knowledge about patents were very little. So you didn't really, as a researcher, you weren't really aware of them. So I see that we've progressed a lot, obviously, since I, since I did my PhD, that people become more and more aware of it. And maybe something that we all, you also touched on there, which is not so tangible as in you get a patent, is the know-how so the know-how of the team and indeed your own know-how like as i mentioned earlier and you discussed you, you went to mit you saw what people were doing there you learned how important was know-how in that respect you know working with colleagues who know more than you working with people who can be seen as an inspiration for what you want to do how important was that for you to get to where you are today
1: totally important Totally. Well, I I have made this company run by bringing on board people that, of course, had a, a a very very big knowledge, of course, more than me in each of the particular areas. Uh, not only in technology, of course, we are talking about product producing, industrializing. We are talking about clinical practice. Uh, we are talking about commercializing. Uh, about financials. So a company brings together so many different areas and it's very, very important to to bring on board the best know-how. So this is completely important and for, for a company know-how and the team is is, is the most important part, is the, the very big asset.
0: And, and the know-how that you built up, especially I can imagine in the medical uh, testing, the clinical testing phase, was that, did at some point, did you say, okay, look, I've got so much knowledge here now, there's actually no point in me going to another company. Everything I need here to set up my own company is here. And maybe the most daunting challenge then is the push that the, the, the go to become an entrepreneur, move away from the research domain into producing your own thing. Was that something that occurred to you when you were setting up Marcy Bionics? Yeah, at
1: the, well, when, when I decided to fund Marcy Bionics, a few days before that nothing in in my head was considering to to become an entrepreneur or to become well the, the CEO of a company as i am today but what i really had very clear in my mind was that the research results had to be transferred to the society. That, that, that was the, the very one thing that I had in, in my mind. So I initially tried licensing the technology. When this didn't work, then I decided to become an entrepreneur. And what I had to do was to, well, what, exactly the same thing I have been doing all my life to study to study in this case, well, about human resources, about marketing, about financials, about just trying to uh, get the knowledge that I needed to to fund the company. And also, as I already said, to bring on board the the team that, that is needed because this is something that can't be done by oneself alone. So you need a team, you need to be complete. in in all the different areas to make a company run and and happen. So it has been difficult, but not so different to the previous journey, the previous academic journey, just a matter of adapting to new things, new environments, uh, getting outside from your comfort zone and adapting to, to, well, new new ideas, new things, new environments, uh, new ecosystems and well there's also some kind of trial and error part so you need to, to try and perhaps there are some some decisions that were not the best one but you simply correct them and and you you gain more knowledge about it so you learn continu- it's it's a continuous learning process i think it's fascinating i have learned a lot i have i have grown up uh professionally and personally in, in this this new mm, new part of my of my career not so academic more entrepreneurship but i think it's it has been so motivating and i i, I won't i don't consider i i would have done something different if i if, if i could come back again to the initial moment i took that decision
0: yeah well it's quite clear that you had the drive to to get your research results out into the commercial world. And I think this drive, it's, it's what we hear from inventors, it's very important if you want to succeed that you, you know, it's like telling yourself, okay, I can't fail. So no matter what comes up, you will adapt. And I guess the, uh, as you mentioned, the fact that you've done so much research beforehand, if you look at it as another research, it becomes easier mentally to, to manage. Yeah, exactly. It's
1: another, another kind of research in a different environment but the the process you apply are exactly the same yeah you learn yeah. you apply you experimentate you test you correct you try again it's very similar and the team having the right yeah. team
0: and in your case the tto helped obviously and this in the tech transfer office helped obviously prepare you for this move into your own business
1: well, the, the technology transfer office uh, was initially mm, helping, really helping on the patenting issue. Um, now they are also very helpful in terms of uh, creating a, a spin-off companies. By the time when I decided to create a spin-off company, this was not so um, so frequent in, in our technology transfer office, but they are doing it right now very well.
0: Okay, and then if we think about uh, the patents and the spin-off company that you, the spin-off, the process, did you, were you involved in identifying, you know, doing research, finding out was where there similar patents in this domain, or did you leave this to to someone else, maybe in the tech transfer office?
1: No, at the very beginning, when we start uh, research, uh, we usually start with a uh, uh, state-of-the-art research, and we look for uh, similar uh, devices or research results, not only in scientific papers, we also look for patents using well these already available platforms. Uh, so this is something that we take into account uh, since the very beginning. Of course, once we end up with a research result that we think that is important to. To protect through through patents, then of course then we again perform a, a research on some patent databases, uh, just to check that they don't uh, interfere in our protection. This is something that we usually do ourselves. Sometimes we have some uh, special funding for it. Perhaps we can look for some consultancy uh, uh, systems or 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 um, aids.
0: Okay, so of course we understand patent protection and funding are important, but it's very apparent from talking to you that there's more to it than just that. And if I go back a little to your interview that you gave during the European Inventor Award, you stated that your invention, the two patents that you have, it's something more than a medical advice. And I think this emanates or resonates with people because you know you won the popular prize at the European Inventor Award as well. So can you expand maybe a little bit more on what that means for you? I mean, you've already talked about it, but maybe you can go, what do you mean when you say it's more than a medical advice, device? Device, Yeah,
1: because we have been during this talk talking about the, well, perhaps the more technological part or the technical part of the invention. But yes, what we have found out is that is something much more than a a tool that helps kids walk. And I think I can explain it better with an example because uh, there are so many kids in the video. You have seen uh, one kid, which has suffered an an incredible evolution using the exoskeleton, but there are some more kids. And I would like to talk about Alejandro. Alejandro is is a seven-year-old boy. He has cerebral palsy. Uh, he is also uh, blind. We don't know exactly how much he is able to see. And um, he has also um, a, a low cognitive le- level. So, cognitively, he has an age of two. Um, when Alejandro came uh, to use the exoskeleton for the first time, he was, well, he came in his wheelchair uh, with the, his head hanging down. Of course there was nothing in front of him interesting. He couldn't interact because he was unable to talk, unable to well, unable to to see, unable to walk. So he was unable to interact with the with the world. Therefore he was an unmotivated child, always looking upside down. Um when he started walking with the exoskeleton, in his very first session, he completed the one hour session walking, he completed it, which is not so frequent, uh, but he he was trying to lift his head, but he hadn't enough force in his muscles. And therefore he was always trying to lift his head saying what's happening here. And then the head was turning down again. After four months using the exoskeleton twice a week, um, Alejandro has now his head up. And he's now playing with a ball, throwing it to a basket. So he's at this moment interested in interacting with the environment. And what he's doing is he's playing. He's playing with a ball and he's he has some intention in what he is doing. Therefore, it's not just a matter of walking. So what we see is that this skeleton is a tool that has a a real impact in the personal development of these kids. So they interact with environment, therefore they improve not only physically, but also cognitively. And also they reinforce their self-esteem. They also, some of them, those that have uh, perceived their their cognition, they also consider that they are not just like their, their peers, they are even better and their peers because they do have an exoskeleton. So what we see is that this is a completely new approach to neurorehabilitation, completely centered in the motivation of the kid. And it's a a full approach to neurorehabilitation, not only focused on the physical part of the rehabilitation, but in the complete personal development of the kids.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful story it really is um so if we if we look towards your future the future of your company what what are your next projects or where do you see this exoskeleton going or what the next steps are in this domain
1: well our first step is internationalization so we are at this moment uh installing exoskeletons in in europe and in mexico So our next steps are UK and the United States. This is the the very next steps. But in terms of uh, technical development, we are working on the personal use of exoskeletons at home and not only for kids, also for adults, especially for elderly. So a technical aid, Uh, for locomotion. Because we have seen that exoskeletons are not just a matter of walking because they really impact in the personal development of of the user. So to have a device that is able to integrate in the society, uh, people that are usually at home because they are not able to to move to walk out this is so so interesting so we are already developing this this family of, of devices for personal use and community use these are these are our next steps
0: okay so that improves the life quality independence of people things like this so you can see there are many many possibilities for for such an exoskeleton um looking long term what do you see as the next big thing in your in your area is there some goal out there maybe that you have or
1: well, I'd love to see a completely integration of machine and human. Uh, perhaps some parts inside the body. <laughs> but if I if I talk about this, perhaps you will think that I am a little bit crazy. So let's wait a little bit. The technology <laughs> allows us to think about this.
0: No, I mean we've seen it in in sci-fi films. So you can imagine that it, it it's it's a goal many people I think to to get to that that level. Okay, so before we open the discussion to the audience on social media and Slido, uh, one question we always ask our our guests is, um, do they have any advice for budding young inventors? So maybe advice you wished you had gotten at the start of your journey.
1: Yeah, this is something that I always think about it because I. I see it frequently in a team of engineers, as, as I am an engineer. We usually look for developing complex and very versatile and, and cool things, uh, cool mechanisms that can do so many things. And my my advice is that the best innovation is the simplest one. So it's better if you make it simple, simple and and. And also to check the market first, not only that it solves a real need, but also that the market out there is able to absorb that invention is also important.
0: Okay, good good advice. Yeah, I think in research it's very easy to get lost in uh, looking for the best version of everything. So. It's interesting what you say there. Okay, let's turn to the questions. We have a few questions. So um, I will start off with the first one. And it is, we can imagine that tackling this problem through different technological areas has some great challenges. How was it for you to trust and show confidence when you had to collaborate with experts from different areas? And what kind of risks are there, and how are they controlled?
1: Well very very good question yeah indeed well i as i have said the the team is key but yes it's a multidisciplinary team and it's not easy to to collaborate between the clinical part engineers uh, commercial teams so they have different uh, points of view and different the different ways they approach uh, the same the same problem. Therefore, the the collaboration between these very different cultures is not easy. Mm -hmm. Uh, The way we have been working with this collaboration is uh, having a very horizontal decision system where uh, all information is exchanged between all of them, and this is working. But I can say that it didn't work at the very, very first minute. So it's, it's a matter of inertia, team working. And at the end, uh, the clinical team understands engineering. The engineering team understands clinics. Also happens with the commercial team. So at the end, all of them understand a little bit and they are able to put the, into the shoes of the other teams. It's, but, but it, it is. It is a process. It's not something at the very beginning working properly. Yeah, it's, it's, this is difficult.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it sounds, it sounds really difficult. And the bigger your company is, probably the more difficult it is to get this buy-in and understanding across, across teams. Um, yeah. Here's a really interesting question, I think. What kind of pressures have you had to deal with on your journey and as, as an inventor? And what techniques have you found most useful for coping with these?
1: well the main pressures uh, i have found come from the journey from from the research world to the to the company world i mean being a researcher and turning into an entrepreneur has some pressures from from both sides i i can say so i'm not totally uh, I'm a researcher anymore, and I'm not totally uh, an entrepreneur anymore. I'm something in between, and this makes some doubts some sometimes. And also during the process, at the very beginning, it wasn't well seen from from the academic body to have a, a researcher moving uh, towards the, the the market the market world. Um, I believe that allowing this permeability—I mean, allowing these two worlds to be meshed together—is what really uh, enriches the technology transfer process and really accelerates the process. I, I believe that breaking these barriers of separating the two worlds—the academic world and the market—breaking these barriers are so important to to build this bridge. So I mean, it shouldn't be a bridge. It should be something continuous. It, it should be something that work together. And especially for, for technology-based companies, that spin-off companies, these uh, startups at the very beginning, at, at the early stages are like laboratories. They are something very similar to research laboratories. So having both meshed together is what really uh, accelerates the, the, the transfer of technology. For me, the big pressure has has been in, in in this case. I have also faced so many difficulties in terms of funding and in terms of regulatory issues and whatever, because there are so many other complications. You need to fight and to, to learn and to study and to look for different solutions. But the pressure, the real pressure I have felt has been in, 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 this, in this aspect. So being a, a research scientist that is moving to the market is some is not easily understood in in some environments.
0: Yeah, I can I can that resonates with me. I mean, I think we need to need to have these figures in research that people can look to and go to and ask, how do you do this? Because it's not so apparent to take your invention and just bring it out there. Or indeed, what the challenges are, and this may indeed turn people off from even going down that route because they think, okay, well, I don't know how to do it. So. I'm not gonna go, I'm gonna carry on doing my research. So it's uh, it's very interesting what you're saying. And it's good to have people that like yourself that one can look at and go, okay, they've done it. Maybe you can reach out to you, get more information or indeed find other people which are similar and, and, and tap into their knowledge and how they did it. Okay, I have a question here which I don't really fully understand but I'm gonna hope that you do. Uh, the question is, how is this approach different from HCI? Is HCI something you understand?
1: HCI. Yeah. No, I, I don't know. I'm
0: sorry. Okay, we can if only there's only the
1: there, something that
0: can some... develop on that. Yes. Yeah, okay, let's see if they develop on that, on that question. Uh, let's have a look, maybe one more question. Yeah, it's similar to what we've asked already, but we can repeat it. Is there any advice that you would give young scientists and inventors who are starting? ah, here it is. Sorry, I can go back to the other question. It's human computer interaction. HCI. So how is your approach different to human-computer interaction?
1: Okay. Uh, Human-computer interaction is something that interacts between the machine and the human uh, in terms of, I mean, cognitively. So some intentions, whatever. Uh, Of course, this plays a key role in exoskeleton technology. We need to detect intention of of the user to conduct the motion of the device, but there's also some physical interaction. So We have two different kinds of interaction between the machine and the human. One is cognitively, which is human-computer interaction, and the other one is uh, physical. Uh, the physical interaction is the that the one that is protected by by our patent, patents exactly. Mm-hmm. So if if you want to translate our patents to the interaction between a machine and, and a device, yes it's it's something similar to that. But it's more, more physical. Okay. It's not only based on signals and signal processing and, and Uh, coordinating control actions, but it is uh, much more on interaction, in physical interaction between the device and the person. So there are two different uh, concepts of human-machine interaction.
0: And where does the the AI part in your development come in there? Is that to do with the, um, it must be also to do with the interface of, of how the person is reacting to their development, like as they get better, or get more, get stronger. For example, then the AI is used. Is it to help adapt the muscles that are in the exoskeleton? Is that how it works? Well, if we, if
1: okay, um, artificial intelligence is, is something that plays a key role in the decision in the decision making part of the of the controller. So you can have a robot that has uh, some action, some perception, and in between them, there's a decision making system that depending of what it perceives from the environment, then decides which action is, is commanded, so to move forward or whatever. So artificial intelligence is can be or not inside this uh, decision system. And as long as you have an artificial intelligence system, you are able to uh, modify in some way or to um, learn in some way uh, the, the, the how to decide or how to take these decisions in in the most efficient way okay so uh in our exoskeletons we have different kinds of control system they are they mo- mostly rely on traditional uh, robot control but it's true that we use some artificial intelligence techniques to uh, uh, understand how the patient uh, works for example we have um Uh, plantar pressure in soles at the feet of the of the user and therefore if there's an unbalanced way of walking from one leg to the other we are able to help the patient to understand how to move one leg depending on how he's using the healthy leg in case in case there's a healthy leg so there are some ways to uh, help the device learn how to move, as but not in a healthy way, a normalized healthy way, but in the way the user needs to work, taking into account the healthy body or the healthy part. I don't know okay. if <laughs> I am able to
0: explain it. No, no, I think it was clear. Well, let's do one more question because I think it ties in nicely here with what you've just explained and it is, are there any natural limitations for your invention? So for example, in the use of adults, Or can you imagine a future where everybody who is unable to walk will be able to move their bodies with the help of technology like this? So I think basically- Well, that would be the
1: ideal, yeah. That could be the ideal, of course, but it's true that the sooner you use the technology, and when I mean the sooner, I mean, so usually uh, these diseases, have a, a zero moment. some sometimes they are born with a, with a disease or perhaps there's an accident or the disease uh, or the symptoms of the disease arise later in time. So the sooner you start with the device, the better in 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 all terms I mean uh, when you have uh, a patient that has been for 20 years sitting in a wheelchair, it's very, very difficult to help this, this person stand up and walk with the device. It's not just a matter of having the, the best device, uh, it's a matter that this person uh, has the, the joints with some kind of atrophy that is impossible to restore. So there are, of course, limitations. Limitations, but they are mainly limitations in terms of the health of the patients, the, the symptoms of the patients. As I said, the medical device uh, is indicated for for a given pathology. So you need to demonstrate clinically for each of the diseases that the device is useful. This is another limitation, of course, but it's a matter of time that you continue making research, clinical research, until you end up with all the possible uh, the possible diseases. But the the first limitation is the user itself. So the sooner that the, the, the patient starts using an exoskeleton, the better.
0: Okay, yeah, it's very natural what you're saying. I mean, it makes makes sense. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. We've come to the end of our Q&A session. Um, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to be with us. And of course, we wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you,
1: it's uh, been a pleasure. Thank you very much.
0: I would also like to thank our audience for all their great questions. You've really helped make this a really interesting talk. The next episode of Inspiring Inventors will be in October, where we will be in conversation with Johan Martens, Tom Bossaras, and Jan Ronge, who have invented a solar panel that produces clean hydrogen gas from sunlight and ambient moisture. So potentially providing an alternative source of green energy for buildings all around the world. So please check out the Inspiring Adventures page on the EPO website for further details. Until then, I wish you all a great afternoon and wish you a great day from all of us here. Thank you very much. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to know when the next episode of Talk Innovation comes out, then why not hit the subscribe button. Once again, thanks for listening. We look forward to welcoming you next time on Talk Innovation, the EPO podcast.